0: Live. Hello, I'm Susan Bellante, I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Derek Berry, author of Heathens and Liars of Lick County, a remarkable first novel by this young author which explores life in a small town in Lithskillet County, South Carolina, a murder mystery, and the all controversial racial topic in the South. A fantastic, well written story with unexpected twists and turns. But before we start Let's learn a little bit more about Derek. Derek Berry is a novelist, spoken word poet, and student. He has published Heathens and Liars of Liskillet County with PRA Publishing in 2016. This is his first novel. He performs spoken word in venues across the Southeast United States and hosts bi-monthly poetry series, The Unspoken Word in Charleston, South Carolina. He is currently studying as an undergraduate in political science and international studies at the College of Charleston. For more information on Derek Barry and his book, visit his website at www.derekbarry.wordpress.com, and that is d-e-r-e-k-b-e-r-r-y.wordpress.com. Hi, Derek. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, I'm doing really swell.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. I'm really excited to talk to you because it's very rare that I get to talk to such a young published author. So I'm really grateful that you took time out of your college schedule and all that stuff to talk to an old lady here. Please tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what was your upbringing and, you know, while growing up in the South?
1: Well, I grew up in Aiken, South Carolina which has a population of about 30,000 people. So it's not a small southern town, but it's also not a city. And I lived a little bit outside of the city limits, which gave me kind of a taste of rural life without really being entrenched in farm life or hunting or things like that. Um, And my father's side of the family is is very southern. So, you know, I grew up on sweet tea. uh, Pretty much runs through my blood at this point. And, you know, kind of surrounded a lot by hunting culture, southern culture, and things of that nature. And that well, really shaped kind of my experiences of uh, becoming a writer.
0: Yeah, and um, I, I must tell you, I've been in South Carolina, and I lived in North Carolina for a while. Uh, so I, I can testify to the southern charm of the south over there because I really loved it. You are so young. I saw your picture. I don't know your age, but you, you really look young. And it's very seldom that you see somebody not only publish a book but get uh, raving reviews from it um, at your age. When and how did you start writing? Because you must have started at a very early age.
1: Yes, I was a very ambitious child. Um, When I was 11, I remember sitting at the family computer for hours on end, and I remember writing my first book and thinking, okay, I'm going to be published by 13. That was my goal. And then I said, okay, maybe by 16 and now i'm 22 and my first book is published so i you know it's a little bit behind schedule but you know things are going well um i was writing constantly as a kid Actually, when I was around 11, my parents told me, look, we're just going to have to buy him a laptop, you know, because <laughs> he'll spend hours and hours on the family computer and I'd print off stories in 24-point font uh for no particular reason other than to, to make it look as if I'm writing even more than I was and force people to read it. So it was it was really lovely growing up. I think I had a grand delusion about how to write and what it meant to be a writer, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day... That delusion was incredibly beneficial because I was writing about a manuscript length story every year or so, maybe two years for some of them. So by the time I was 16, I had already, you know, written hundreds of thousands of words. So I had a lot of story under my belt and I kind of learned through kind of mimicking others. I remember writing a bunch of really silly books that were basically knockoffs of other books.
0: How did, ha, yeah. how did you get how did you get inspired at that age though? Did you have like a storyteller relative or um it just you were just born with this storytelling uh, talent?
1: Well, when I was really young, my mom used to read to us. So I have two brothers and we kind of have, like uh you know, bedtime story, but she didn't really like reading children's books. So she we'd read stuff that was meant for young adults, a little bit older. You know, which is maybe nine or ten. But I was really into that, and our house was full of books. Just wall to wall, books, books, books. So, of course, I grew up reading constantly.
0: That's awesome. You know, I I checked out your blog, and I can see where your talent comes very, uh, you have your own voice, which is rare uh, for somebody so young to accomplish. And I can see that you have written even probably more than what I had at the time that I published my book. Writing a fiction book length not only takes creativity and talent and inspiration. It takes a lot of discipline. So why don't you talk to us a little bit of how you came up with that perfect balance of creativity and discipline and and inspiration?
1: Well, when I was in high school, which is when I first started writing this book, um, Hedons and Liars, it was rather easy. I felt kind of unchallenged by school, which now is completely untrue. But I remember being very bored, you know, in class. I'd finish my work early, so I was constantly scribbling things. I'd bring my laptop to class, and I'd just kind of be writing. I also was a lot better at writing habits. When I was younger, I started to slack off because of the things I must do at university, (laughs) (laughs) all of the kind of endless course load. So I had, like, really good writing habits. I'd wake up around 6 in the morning and write for about two hours before school. And having that kind of habit writing every day was really beneficial because you know like i said i i really was under the impression okay i'm going to be a writer i'm going to be a writer i'm going to be a writer so i tried to work like i was already a published professional writer and made it a part of my schedule
0: did you write at the high school paper or anything like that did you get that uh, opportunities like that or you were just immersed in your own writing
1: I did. um, When I was a sophomore, I started writing for the high school newspaper, and it really helped me develop a voice that was a lot funnier. I think it was very morose at first when I was writing, and then I began probably when I was a junior in high school writing a humor column for the high school newspaper, which is called The Hornet Herald, and that humor column helped me develop my voice.
0: That's awesome. I wish that we would have had a paper in high school. I used to write since a very young age, also around maybe 12 years old. I had my diary and stuff. But during high school, I had no um, outlet. So it makes all the difference when you do. Because then you give it that serious attitude to your writing. Mm -hmm. So I guess that discipline that you learned and your habits uh, help you balance your college student schedule with um, your new published book promotion and writing.
1: Somewhat, yeah. Um, right now, it's been absolutely insane. So for the past uh, two weekends, and then I had one weekend off, and the weekend before that, I've just been doing book tour dates. So mm-hmm. I've been doing readings um, all through South Carolina. The, the book came out in February, and it's been nonstop since then. And it's also my very last semester as a student at the College of Charleston, mm-hmm. which has been uh, a very challenging. This week is actually finals week. So oh, I'm two wow. days away from being done. So it's just kind of sleeplessness. I haven't worked on the book uh, or the second book in about, like, two or three weeks because I've just been kind of inundated with essays and senior pieces.
0: Yeah. Derek, tell me something. I mean, you're majoring in political science, I saw, and that's actually my major. I have a B.A. in political science and business administration. So um, I told you we had something in common. And not only that, my daughter also is – got a BA in science, and she's working with refugees. So she's been working uh, with refugees for, for a while when she was in in Colorado. So tell me a little bit about your experience in the international politics and refugee policy, because uh, I think it's so interesting, and I'm, I'm really happy to, to talk to a peer, <laughs> or soon-to-be yeah. peer.
1: Most of my work so far has been theoretical. They're based mm-hmm. in college. So I started my senior thesis on migration policy in Germany. And I was particularly interested in how integration works for migrants. Mm -hmm. And so I I started looking at the history of um, Turkish guest workers in Germany who started coming over in the 1960s, West Germany, during a kind of labor shortage. But now as uh, refugees from Syria and other countries have been entering Europe and Germany is kind of becoming the country that's leading the EU through that refugee crisis. I think it's really important to look back on the past about the importance of integration and where Germany and other countries have stumbled and where they've succeeded, and then try to apply those lessons to what's going on right now, particularly in Germany.
0: You know, with everything that we hear in the news of of the immigrants here in the U.S., immigrants Mm -hmm. policy Uh, Do you think that it resembles a little bit what's going on in Europe, in Germany, or, or are we all doing different things, do you think?
1: I definitely think there's similarities one can draw between the corridor of migration from Central America, Mexico into the U.S., as well as from North Africa, Middle East into Europe, because a lot of the people coming, uh, specifically from Central America and Mexico are fleeing war, just that war in the same sense as, um, the Syrian war. So, I mean, the, the drug war in Mexico has caused, uh, massive violence, and I think that, you know, that, that those kinds of conditions make it, uh, necessary to leave. So I definitely think that there are similarities to be drawn. And also the rhetoric, this very angry rhetoric about migrants and about refugees that paints them as less than people, but more as these kind of political objects who have to be dealt with, I think is really harmful. And I think that kind of applies both, uh, especially for Latino migrants in the United States and also the migrants who are... Uh, from different Muslim majority countries in uh, who are coming into Europe,
0: your book, Heathens and Liars at Lick skillet County, tells a story based also on a hate crime. Was all this contact that you're having with refugees in your studies inspire inspire the kind of the main plot and the way that you developed the story? I know you were writing it in high school did influence, did it influence at all when the plot that you did in 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 this book,
1: no, uh, just because my kind of interest in migration policy came a lot later. Mm-hmm. And I think um, my my politics have become a lot more radical, especially kind of concerning borders and what borders signify and what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of all developed while I was in university, mm-hmm. but definitely kind of things going on in my like, hometown as well as around the United States when I was growing up. It definitely influenced the way in which I viewed racism. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really strange because after it came out, there's been an increase in visibility of racially motivated crimes, Mm -hmm. especially with kind of uh, more, I guess, a new focus on uh, police brutality and police deaths of uh, black women and men in the United States. Uh, but that's not something I mean I planned or was thinking about when I was writing the book. Um, I was actually thinking a lot more about what has happened to all of these kind of white supremacist groups because until recently i don 't think you know uh, we really like heard about them a lot, and I started being interested in like okay, well, you know what does it look like to be a modern day you know member of the Kuluxz Clan? what does it mean to be a modern day white supremacist? And it's really bizarre because they've kind of changed their image in a really radical and kind of tricky way that is now being reflected in American politics in a very particular way. So instead of being explicitly racist or explicitly anti-black or Mm anti-migrant, they – frame the rhetoric around being pro-family or pro-American values or drawing from Christian values while actually using that kind of mechanism of justification to then enact actually really, really racist policies.
0: Scoop Live is a global, Internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life, experience, as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Derek Berry, author of Heathens and Liars of Liskillett County. Stay tuned because we are going to continue this fun, entertaining, and enlightening conversation with Derek about balancing his author life with being a student, discipline, creativity and inspiration, politics and refugees, and racial issues, among other topics. But in the meantime, you can check out Hiddens and Liars of Lisskiller County and his blog by visiting his website at www.derrickberry.wordpress.com and that .dot d-e-r-e-k-b-e-r-r-y.wordpress.com. One of the things
1: I remember kind of grappling with in the book, especially in studies afterwards, is when we think about racism we typically think about you know we think about white we think about burning crosses we think about these really explicit expressions of racism but sometimes the most harmful Uh, forms of racism come through institutional frameworks, so the way schools are created, the way communities have been restructured so that certain people have a political voice and certain people do not, Um, the way in which uh, jobs are offered to some people and not offered to other people based on race, things like that come from people who are in power, so people who aren't explicitly racist but rather claim that they don't really think about race or, oh, but at the same time, they are, because they're in power, they're using that authority to then push across these kind of racist agendas.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember when I spent a year in Boone, North Carolina, in the Appalachian State University, and I remember I was 17, actually, because I graduated from high school at a very early age, me and my brother did so. And um, I remember people that we knew in Florida uh, told my parents, oh, no, you know, she's going to be, she's going to have a hard time, she's going to have a hard time and i actually uh found uh found it opposite. uh i was actually everybody's pet. <laughs> so <laughs> i everybody just was very warm. i didn't have any trouble whatsoever and the only time i had maybe a little bit of problem was during a math class and my professor would handle it very well. So, uh, do you think it is because, uh, some people, it's the lack of contact with different cultures that might kind of make all this, I don't want to say, uh, hate against racism, but, you know, racism, does, do you think it has to do it with being just always in a bubble and not going out? Because I find, uh, I, I mean, I didn't grow in a bubble. My parents were immigrants in Venezuela. They were mm-hmm. from Italy. So I've been an immigrant all my life and then I migrated here. And my children are first generation Amer- Americans, but they are, uh, my daughter, one is brown hair and hazel eyes, the other one is blonde and, uh, blue eyes. So, it, my family has, uh, all kinds of colors, because of occupation in Europe, um, was many different races, right? So yeah. I really didn't understand it. So I wonder, is, is, what do you think racism occurs, um, well. Whether on the South well, in your experience i'm not asking for right. a you know like a you know like a thesis on it, but uh, I yeah. want to know what somebody from the South thinks um, why does it occur in in the south
1: oh man that's a very good question um, I'll, I'll try to like touch upon some of it i mean i it's something I feel on one hand a little bit uncomfortable talking about I think that's one of the reasons it's difficult is so like as a white man, I think it's really difficult to then make claims about the experiences of people who are not myself and don't share that particular experience. Mm-hmm. Because I do think there is there is a difference in experience. And a lot of it, I mean, obviously it stems from uh, the history of racial prejudice in the United States, beginning with the way in which like hierarchies were institutionalized through mm-hmm. slavery. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after the abolition of slavery, there were still really conscious and deliberate efforts to just dismantle and dispower power uh, black communities. Yeah, and yeah, So, yeah, so the Jim Crow laws, but also, I mean, smaller mechanisms were kind of put in place. So, on, on one hand, um, you know, you, you want to talk, like, I hear a lot of people, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. So, for the past year, I've heard a lot of talk about this, um, you know, about harmony and the need to come together. And, okay, if you're, if you're friends with uh, you're friends of different people, a diverse set of people, then you can kind of understand racism. But, on the other hand, um, it has to do with both the personal level, but also the institutional level. Mm-hmm. So, I think, Just people – I think that's a very important part of it, and I think that's kind of where a lot of the ground-level work, dismantling white supremacist systems comes in, is in people just living in a really, like, love ethic towards each other and Mm -hmm. truly, like, becoming friends and getting to know people as people and not these really harmful narratives and stereotypes. But well, on the other hand, it really also takes the people in power, the people with authority to make decisions to make right the historical disenfranchisement of um, people of color in the United States.
0: Yeah, I actually really agree with you, and this is why I brought this question. We we are living in Venezuela situation. When I was living there, there was um, very little racism, and then one person comes into power, and now you see – how uh, the color of your skin does make a difference for the worse for the light-skinned colored people because of, mm. of Chavez. And so you're right, institutionalized racism can really make a difference um, in a country, whether for the better or for the worse. And right. uh, Yeah, so history has um, a lot to say, but also by changing the philosophy and policy and institution, uh, uh, you can restructure everything and change history. Yeah, so very well said. Um, I'm impressed. By your answer.
1: I think it's really important to just have like honest dialogue about it too. A lot of people want to pretend like we're 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 in this post-racial age, you know, Barack Obama's president, our first black president, as if we somehow transcended race and somehow moved past all of these issues. And by ignoring that, by pretending to be colorblind, I think we only reinforce the systems that are in place.
0: Yeah. Uh, Listeners, uh, we've been talking to Derek Berry, author of Heathens and Liars of Lick-Skillet County, which is actually uh, raving between our reviewers here in Reader Views as well as um, others, and I really recommend this book for you to check out. Our reviewer, Sherry, gave it a really big praise, and she says she loved the characters and your writing. Please check it out at DerekBerry.wordpress.com, and that is D-E-R-E-K. Berry. dot wordpress. dot com. Uh, Derek, are you working on a sequel for it?
1: I'm not working on a sequel, but I am working on book number two.
0: Okay, what is it about?
1: <laughs> well, um, I'll tell you a little bit. It's about a black girl in Charleston who has come out as gay to her father, and kind of about the fallout of that as she's navigating college life.
0: Oh wow! I love it that your wor- your main character is a girl. <laughs> Yeah, are, are you ready to do that? Where are you doing your research? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm
1: I, I'm definitely um, wanting to challenge myself. Um, Why well, I, I live with these two black girls, so I'm I'm having them read it as well to make sure I'm not saying anything super offensive or totally wrong.
0: That's awesome. You also work as a spoken word poet. So, what do you do <laughs> as a, right. a, a spoken word poet? <laughs>
1: Well, um, so a spoken word poet is just like a poet, except that there's an emphasis on performance of the poetry.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I write the poems, edit them, memorize them, and then perform them as teachers at different open mics, poetry slams, and showcases kind of around the Southeast.
0: Oh, wow, that's awesome. Um, how do you stumble into that? Is that uh, uh, like a trend right now? Or I've never heard of a uh, spoken word poet, I mean, I've always heard the term poet. I write poetry myself, and I have gone to open mics myself, but I never really listened to somebody call themselves a spoken word poet. Um, so how yeah. do you stumble upon that?
1: It's definitely rising in popularity right now with the emphasis on Poetry Slams, which is a competitive form of a poetry show where you get points and go through different rounds. Mm -hmm. but I I stumbled onto it when I was about 16. I remember I really thought poetry was boring and stupid, and I was was a a big snob. I'm like, oh, you know, Robert Frost, You know, I don't care what road he's taking in the woods. I really (laughs) don't care. But then I remember walking into a room and someone was just speaking this poem and performing it from memory and doing it with such passion. I remember looking at that person and saying, okay, I'm going to do that. That looks so amazing. So I started writing and going to open mics. Now that I've moved to Charleston, I started my own um, poetry series, which has open mics and slams. We just had a showcase last night where we had a book release party for a good friend of mine in Charleston named Marcus Hammerker, And it's just been really wonderful because it's grown tremendously. We get about 50 to 100 people at every oh, wow. show. And people are just Really loving, uh, loving it. And I think it's a way to really bring poetry, um, into the community because people see poetry as something that is like dying or dead. But I mean, obviously, poetry has been dying a very long time. You know, people yeah. have been saying, oh, poetry's dead. And you know, I'm like, okay, we're still alive and we're still here and we're still speaking.
0: Yeah, well said. We're getting to, towards the end. And again, we're talking to Derek Berry author of Heathens and Liars of lick Skillet County. His website, com. I checked out your blog, and I think you have a wonderful voice there. And you called your – what's the name of your blog, by the way? It's Word the, Salad. Salad, exactly. I thought that was hilarious and so true uh, when you described that You just put the words with no meaning whatsoever, and you put in, you know, Wikipedia. <laughs> And I thought that was hilarious. Where did you come up with that name?
1: Uh, Word salad?
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Word salad is actually a term in psychology. It's also sometimes called uh, schizophysia. I think it also has another name. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it, it is when a particular part of your brain is acting up, so you begin speaking these kind of Mixtures of random and unintelligible words and phrases mm-hmm. that seem not to have any connectivity between them. So, I don't know, I, I just really liked the the phrase word salad and I thought it kind of described my, well, it doesn't describe my thought process but it it kind of speaks to the way in which my mind works and kind of going off in a thousand different directions.
0: Well, Derek, it's, it's actually really been Really nice talking to you because I you're very wise for your age and you're very accomplished for your age, and at the same time you sound very down-to-earth and, and, and just uh, plain old nice. So I'm I'm glad that we got to talk. And I want to ask you, what would you tell yourself, now that you've gone through the entire process of writing a full book and publishing it and you're in the promoting, and now you know what a published author is all about, what would you tell your old self before you even thought about publishing?
1: I would say don't take yourself too seriously. Don't get a big head. Um, make sure to remember, hey, everything you're going to do is still to be done and that it's going to be a slow and hard process. It's going to be incredible, but it's going to be a very long process. So you got to just keep humble, I think, is the, the really important thing.
0: That's awesome and very well said. I agree with you. I was very humbled um, by my process. My process for my uh, first book was 16 years so you can imagine that um because i had to learn english before i i could sure. really <laughs> um publish in english so be proud of yourself you know not everyone has the discipline and the persistence to finish a project like yours so very well done thank you for being here listeners again we've been talking to derek barry and his book is Heathens and Liars of Lick-Skillet County. Check it out at DerekBerry.wordpress.com, and that is D-E-R-E-K-B-E-R-R-Y.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for being here, Derek, and very much luck with your future book as well.
1: Thank you very much. It was really lovely talking to you.
0: And listeners, thank you again for being with us, and until next time.